0: All right, the scripture reading this morning is from Matthew 17, 1 through 9. Six days later, Jesus took with him Peter and James and his brother John and led them up a high mountain by themselves. He was transfigured before them, and his face shone like the sun, and his clothes became dazzling white. Suddenly there appeared to them Moses and Elijah. Talking with him. Then Peter said to Jesus, Lord, it is good for us to be here. If you wish, I will make three dwellings here one for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah. While he was speaking, suddenly a bright cloud overshadowed them, and from the cloud a voice said, This is my son, the beloved. With him I am well pleased. Listen to him. When the disciples heard this, they fell to the ground and were overcome by fear. But Jesus came and touched them, saying, Get up and do not be afraid. And when they looked up, they saw no one except Jesus himself alone. As they were coming down the mountain, Jesus ordered them, tell no one about the vision until after the Son of Man has been raised from the dead. The word of the Lord.
1: Good. Uh, hey, everybody. Um, good morning. This, this message is in honor of Berlin Hayes, Haynes because it's her birthday today. And so we're just so excited. We're here to celebrate You and the gift you are to the world, Berlin, so um, super fun. This is a a bit of a family that likes to celebrate, I can tell, which is just a gift, because I feel like churches in our country are just so boring most of the time, and so uh, what a cool thing to be in a room where people enjoy each other and where we can be informal and let our hair down uh, a bit, so feel free to do that with me. I'm probably going to do that with you uh, this morning, and here's why. Um, Have you ever traveled to speak somewhere uh, where you have something kind of in mind around what it is that you want to communicate, then you wake up the morning that you're supposed to communicate, and you're like, ah, man, there's something different, you know? You know what I'm saying? And so, like the last time you traveled and spoke, right? And so, uh, so, so this morning, so this morning I got up and I had one of those feelings, like I don't know. I mean. You come in with a thought, and there's something different going on in the space, right? And so I went to this place called Caribou Coffee, and um, apparently it's a it's a local. Uh, it's a, maybe it's a chain, right? There's several of them, and and I went to Caribou and and um, and I just, you know, like I get the opportunity to travel a lot and talk about peacemaking and conflict transformation and how do we integrate our faith into real life as citizens of this country. And how do we do that, especially right now? And I get to talk about immigration and refugees and Muslim and Christian and Jewish relationships. I get to talk about all these things. Um, And sometimes I'm pigeonholed into someone who is like uh, exclusively a peacemaker or exclusively a trainer or so on and so forth. But I am first and foremost a follower of Jesus. And, um, And my emphasis is not peacemaking. My emphasis is Jesus. And from my perspective, when we Follow Jesus, our lives look like peacemakers, and restoration springs to life. And um, and if ever there's a moment uh, where like restoration right is needed in our world, is right now. And the watching world is desperate to know if the people who say they admire Jesus are actually going to follow him. You know. So this is what I'm thinking about when I woke up this morning. And so I went to Caribou and uh, and and um, and started to audit my Jesus. And so I want to talk a little bit about the Jesus I follow. Does this, is this broken? What do I do? <laughs> I'm going to try to keep these, these in order. There's picks. There's three of them. There's a pen. They're going to go right on the floor, whoever this is. Thank you so much. I'm going to adjust this a little bit. I'll oscillate between the two. It's too much. Uh, this is too much stuff. This is going to be fine. <laughs> See, we're already, we're already off to a heck of a start. Um, that's that's actually the perfect height right there, I oh, feel yes, like. Sorry. That's really good. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> Thank you so much. Steve Haynes, ladies and gentlemen. Steve Haynes! So good. Um, the The last couple of months have... I'm so emotional right now. I'm not usually uh, emotional. uh, Kind of. (laughs) Um, The last couple of months have been so intense uh, for me personally in terms of like where where Jesus has invited me into, right? And so um, when when there's broken stuff in the world, uh, we've got a God who enters into the radical center of it. And, um, and goes there intent to transform and heal. And, uh, and right now, uh, for me, over the last four months, uh, it's taken me into the middle of uh, the, the Latino community in particular in my context. I live in Bend, Oregon. Um, there's 100,000 people in my city who are 87% white, uh, 12% Latino, 1% other Of the 12,000 Latinos in my my city, 6,000 of them are undocumented, and 3,500 of them are covered under what's called DACA. Um, DACA means Deferred Action for Childhood Arrivals. These were the kids that migrated here with their parents um, once upon a time, and they they don't have documents, uh, um, but they've grown up in our country. And what's happened over the last couple of months has terrified the Latino community in my context um, people who are deeply invested in Central Oregon, who are major contributors to the fabric of our society, to our economy. Um, they're teaching us how to follow Jesus in ways uh, unlike white folk are able to like, comprehend, it, right? It's just amazing who these people are, but right now they're terrified, and so I'm in the middle of that um, in, in Central Oregon. Nationally, we're seeing such an uptick in Islamophobia and anti-Semitism, right? And uh, like this community center uh, it has been threatened with bombs, right? And, and, and so, like in St. Louis last weekend, there were over a hundred Jewish tombstones kicked over, right? It's just insane to me. And um, and so I'm I'm in the middle of Jewish, Muslim, Christian relationships. And how in the world uh, do we embody the, the life and teachings of Jesus in the midst of the uptick of hatred in our in our country, right? Um, I was just down in the borderlands between San Diego and Tijuana two weeks ago, and I met a woman and her family who had arrived uh, to Tijuana from Guatemala three hours before I got there. She and her family had been on the run for three and a half years, literally running for their lives because the drug cartels were after them. They tried to extort her, um, and, uh, and it cost her husband's life, and it was going to cost her kid's life, her three kids. And so she ran for her life for three and a half years, And I got to sit in a migration shelter in Tijuana and hear her story, and it just shattered my soul, right? Um, And it undoes all of these crazy lies that we hear in our media cycles about who these migrants are and who these refugees are and things like that. When you're sitting next to Ingrid, and you're sitting next to her 20-year-old daughter, who is literally so traumatized, she cannot lift her eyes up to look at yours, right? That's a 20-year-old young woman, and... and, um, you know, so, and what does, Je- like, what does Jesus have to say about all that, right? Because he has to say something about that. And, um, and, and so I'm, I'm in all of these different spaces, and I'm, I'm working with people, and I'm learning to love, and it's just remarkable, and so unbelievably hard, and so unbelievably exactly what we're supposed to be about. And so it's worth it, right? Do you know who is most dissatisfied with my work? Christians. Christians are. And, 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 and that, like, boggles my mind. You know what I'm saying? Like, how is it that American Christians are the most critical of the work that someone like me and so many others are doing in the world? I think we have a Jesus problem. I think we have a Jesus problem, and and so I want to talk a little bit about the Jesus that I follow um, this morning, and I want to invite us to um, maybe audit our Jesus, Uh, because I think the time is right now for us as followers of Jesus in this great country to figure out who our Jesus is, and if the Jesus that we've been following is a counterfeit Jesus or it's a legit Jesus, because if it's a counterfeit Jesus, he's not worth following, and if we're following a counterfeit Jesus, it's costing the blood of countless others. But if we're following a more legitimate Jesus that I think we see in the scriptures, it's going to cost our blood for the sake of others. And, um, and, and so I'd love to just think about Jesus a little bit um, with us, if that'd be okay. So um, I, I wonder if I were to ask you, what is your picture of Jesus? You know, what would you thumb out on a note? Or what would you write? Like My picture of Jesus, the things that Jesus values most. You know, what would you say those things are? And what would you write down? Like, Jesus values boom, boom, and boom the most. And I, I'd encourage you to think about that without using the word love, All right? Because that's, that's a, it's too easy. Like, yeah, he values love. But, like, what are the things that you think Jesus really values, the Jesus that you see in the Gospels? Okay, good. I mean, we can shout some out, or you can sum them out, or whatever it is. I, I think we get really clear, though, that there are some things that Jesus is really, really fixated on. Um, and, and so I want to um, yeah, interact with a Jesus who actually lived in a real place, in a real time, in a political milieu. I want to I wanna interact with a Jesus um, whose skin was dark, whose life was lived on the underside of empire. I want to think about a, 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 a Jesus who um, did not use power to get what Jesus wanted, but chose powerlessness, and ushered in the restoration that changed and is changing the world. I want to think about that Jesus um, for a moment. And so let's place that Jesus in the context, okay? So it's, um, it's first century Palestine. And, and if you think about first century Palestine, there's a, there's a leader-ish of Palestine. His name is Herod the Great. Uh, Herod the Great was known as a a visionary, a master builder. I mean, if you go today with me to the Middle East, you can see some of the architecture of Herod the Great that is just breathtaking. But he was a crazy, paranoid politician. Crazy. You want to know how crazy he was? He had 10 wives and 43 kids. His favorite wife, her name was Miriam. Herod felt like Miriam's son was getting a little too ambitious for the throne. So he brings Miriam and her son, his favorite wife, into his chamber, kills his own son in front of Miriam, and then kills her so that she can't bring more life into the world that could threaten his throne. He had his two most ambitious sons executed. These are his own kids, Okay, five days before his death, he had his oldest son executed in front of him. It's amazing, right? As he was, yeah, he, he was going toward death, and, um, and historians would suggest that he was dying of kind of a combination of syphilis and gonorrhea. And um, so it's kind of a nasty death. And he's, he's going downhill fast. So you know what he did? He pulled all of the religious elite, all of the leaders of the Jewish community together, put him in his dungeon and gave orders that on the day Herod died, he wanted all of them executed too, so that Israel would mourn the day that Herod the Great died. And so that's what they did. Herod the Great was the one who felt like his throne was being threatened by a couple of magi, kings, wise men that came and we were looking for the king of the Jews. And it would indicate that that wasn't going to be Herod. So he enacted genocide in the city of Bethlehem, removing the life from every single baby boy two years and younger. Crazy politician. Crazy leader, right? When he died, and Herod was uh, obviously you know, in control when Jesus was born. When he died, he had three sons left, I guess. Uh, the three sons were Archelaus, Antipas, and Philip, and they all wanted to compete for power. But what they decided is we're going to go over to Rome and we're going to ask Caesar if we can't divide up the land. So there was like the northern region, the central region, and the southern region. And so Caesar said, I'm going to put, I'm going to put Antipas up north. I'm going to put Archelaus in the center where Jerusalem is. And I'm going to put Philip down south. Okay, so now you have three kind of mini-me kings ruling in Israel when Jesus w- was, uh, was on the scene. And... Um, And so, like, this is the world into which Jesus enters. So when God put flesh on and came into the neighborhood, it was an incredibly corrupt, unjust, racist, occupied space under the leadership of crazy people, all right? Now, listen to this. Luke chapter 3. Uh, listen, in, the, in verse 1, in the 15th year of the reign of the emperor Tiberius, when Pontius Pilate was governor of Judea, he's the Roman guy who's in, in charge. Um, Herod Antipas was ruler of Galilee, and his brother Philip, ruler of the region of Iteria and Trachonitis, and Lysanias, ruler of Abilene. During the high priesthood of Annas and Caiaphas, the word of God came to John, son of Zechariah, in the wilderness fascinating that when Luke is actually setting the scene um, into which Jesus is about to enter, and in this moment, he lays out all of the power structure from the emperor, from the Caesar all the way down to like the, the, the best of the best, the super religious, the people who enacted this, this religious system for, um, for the people of Israel. So Luke lays it all out, and isn't it something that when the word of the Lord comes, it doesn't come to anybody in the power structure. It comes to a nobody. It comes to like a, 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 a locust-eating, rag-wearing hermit in the desert, Why? Because when God shows up, God flips everything upside down. The power structures are interrupted. God is not in any way, shape, or form bound by the crazy systems that we want to put in play. When the word of the Lord came, it came to a nobody. Right? Awesome. So good. So John the Baptist is on the underside of, of power. Look, look how John the Baptist begins to position himself in, in this space. Verses 18 and 19. So with many other exhortations, John the Baptist proclaimed the good news to the people. What's the good news? Well, the good news is that God's put flesh on and is here now. God is making good on his promise to restore everything that's broken in the world. It's happening right now. That's the good news, okay? So John the Baptist is proclaiming this, but Herod, the ruler who had been rebuked by John the Baptist because of Herodias, his brother's wife, and because of all the evil things that Herod had done, added to them all of this by shutting up John in prison. And so you have Herod Antipas, who is like the powerful person in the space, He is so intimidated by a a rag-wearing, locust-eating hermit in the desert that he has to do everything he can do to silence this person. Why? Because the kingdom, the picture of the world that John the Baptist was offering was so much better. And people were starting to go, wait, I've been duped into a system where, like, if I protect my power, my abundance, my authority, my safety, if I protect all of those things, I'll be okay. John was saying, no, there's a different way. There's a better way. And people in droves were moving toward John the Baptist so much so that Herod Antipas said, I have to shut up the nobody because the nobody is becoming a somebody and it's threatening my kingdom. So he takes John the Baptist, for a reason we'll talk about it in a second, and, throw, and he throws him in prison, okay? Now, John the Baptist is in prison in Galilee. Go to Matthew chapter four. Matthew chapter four, verse 12, Jesus is on the scene, okay? When Jesus heard that John had been arrested, he withdrew to Galilee. Okay, so I don't know what your picture of Jesus is, and if your picture of Jesus is like a a nice hippie guru that told people to be nice, I think that's a counterfeit Jesus. Why? Because people don't get killed for saying, be nice. The Jesus that I follow is both compassionate, but is magnificently defiant, All right? So if John the baptizer is thrown in prison by Hantipas in Galilee, where's the last place that you would go if you're Jesus? Galilee. But Jesus, hearing that John the baptizer, is in prison, where does Jesus go? Galilee. You think you can silence this movement by putting John the baptizer in jail? You don't even know who you're messing with. Now I'm coming to town. Right? (laughs) So like this concept that Jesus, oh, he, he withdrew. In, no, 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 it was going down in Galilee. And that's where Jesus went. There's this crazy myth among Christian people that God is really fixated on our safety. God is really concerned about us being nice and safe. What we see in Jesus is that God does not prioritize God's own safety. And if God does not prioritize God's own safety, why in the world do we think that God would prioritize ours? Galilee was the most dangerous place in the world for Jesus to go in that moment. And that's exactly where he went. Because followers of Jesus, when there's pain in the world, we get in it. We move toward it. We don't retreat away from it. Because if we retreat away from it, healing's not going to happen. Let's get in it. Right? So Jesus is now in Galilee. Um, and, and, uh, and he's ready to, he's there. I'm here. You're dealing with me now, baby, right? Um, Okay, now, why is John the Baptist in prison? Let's go to Luke chapter 14. Luke chapter 14. Or if you remember what I just said in Luke chapter 3, um, actually, just go to Luke 14, because we're going to play there for a second. Um, In in Luke chapter 3, 18 and 19, what I just got done reading, um, uh, Herod Antipas had put John the Baptist in jail uh, because, because John the Baptist had some things to say about Antipas's love life. OK? Uh, here's the story. Antipas, his first marriage, was a political marriage. He married the, the princess of Idumea. Here's why. Idumea, which is down in the southern region, really didn't like Israel. And especially the king of Idumea didn't care for Herod's family at all, and specifically Herod Antipas. So here at Antipas, he decides that the way that he's going to broker peace with the king of Edumia is he's going to marry that king's daughter. So he pays this exorbitant amount of money to the king of Edumia, who gives Antipas his daughter in marriage. So now they're married to one another. Meanwhile, again, the marriage is designed to broker peace, okay? So let's hold on to that one. Like, let's, let's protect that marriage. Let's make sure that wife is happy, right? Um, meanwhile, Herod Antipas falls in love with his brother's wife. Now, Philip is married to Herodias, and Herodias is the daughter of another one of their brothers, okay? So now Antipas falls in love with Herodias and takes her as his wife. So now Philip and Antipas aren't seen eye to eye anymore, right? So also get this, get this straight. When Antipas takes Herodias as his wife, she becomes like his what? Wife, and niece, and ex sister in law. Okay, a little dysfunctional, right? So, like now you have you have this crazy thing that's going on. What? How do you think the princess of Edomia, who is the first wife, how do you think she responds to all this? She's outraged, right? So what does she do? She goes home and talks to Daddy about it. What's Daddy do? His honor is compromised. He's outraged. So you know what he does? He sends 20,000 troops up toward Galilee. Antipas finds out that there's an army of 20,000 angry Idumeans coming toward him. So you know what he does? He sends 10,000 of his own troops, and they're destroyed. Okay? Check this out. Oh, and so, and so John the Baptist thought all of this was a bad idea, and like talked about it, and uh, yeah, yeah, and he talked about it, and then was thrown in prison, right, so, because Antimus is like, hey, you can't question my love life, you know, (laughs) or whatever, so Luke chapter 14, (laughs) Luke chapter 14, look at verse 28, Uh, so here's what happens, Um, Jesus, uh, large crowds are gathering around Jesus, And he turned to them and he said, who who comes to me and does not hate father and mother, wife and children, brothers and sisters? Yes, even life itself cannot be my disciple. Jesus isn't encouraging us to hate our family. Jesus is saying, I will probably compromise relationships in your family. I'm going to call things into question. I'm going to invite you into things that will cause your family to go, I don't know about that. Right? So he's like, be prepared for that. All right? Then, verse 28, for which of you intending to build a tower does not first sit down and estimate the cost to see whether he has enough to complete it? Otherwise, when he's laid a foundation is not able to finish, all who see it will begin to ridicule him. He's talking about the cost of following Jesus, right? He's saying, like, measure this out a little bit. Don't just pray a prayer and be nice and then go to heaven when you die. Like, this is gonna cost your life. I want you to know that up front. And if you're up for that, great, let's go. If you're not up for that, okay, let's talk another time. All right, we see that repeatedly in the life of Jesus. So he's saying, like, count the cost. It's kind of like if you had this plan to build a building and, and you, you began to build the building, but then halfway through, you run out of money, like, you fool. Right, everybody who looks at that building is going to go, that contractor was a complete clown. What a fool, right? And people were listening in going, oh, yeah, 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 that guy's a fool. Didn't count the cost, right? That's incredible. Um, verse 30 um, or 31, he says, or, Jesus continues the story, or what about a king going out to wage war against another king? What king waging war against, no- sorry, or what king going out to wage war against another king will not sit down first and consider whether he is able with 10,000 to oppose the one who comes against him with 20,000? Okay? All right. This is not Jesus going, hmm, how could I illustrate this? right? (laughs) This is Jesus. This is Jesus saying, this just went down. What kind of fool sends 10,000 troops to meet 20,000 troops? So you can imagine the people going, yeah, yeah, the building analogy. Yeah, Jesus, I get it. I get it. I get it. And then when he goes, or what king sends 10,000 to face 20,000? I bet you people went, yeah. (laughs) You know, like, Not only are we talking current events, but Jesus, if you keep talking like that, you're going to get in trouble. You're going to get in trouble. Like, you don't have the option to defy the system if you want to hold on to your life long. All right? So, like, this magnificent defiance of Jesus. And so if you want to talk to me about how Jesus didn't get political, let's talk about Luke 14. All right. Jesus wasn't partisan, but he was remarkably political. Why? Because Jesus stood adamantly opposed to every and any system, political or religious, that oppressed people, that compromised the dignity and equality of every image bearer on the planet. He stood defiantly opposed to anything that did not look like the kingdom of God. And if that's political, or if you call that not, that's political, right? And, and so, anyway, brief commercial. <laughs> So, Jesus, Jesus, um, so John the Baptist, right, he's still in prison, and Jesus is spouting this stuff off in Galilee, and, uh, and John the Baptist starts to get confused, right? Like, if I'm, the, if I'm the cousin of the Messiah, why am I still in prison? That's a legitimate question. Right. And so like um, so John the Baptist somehow finds a way to get some of his people to Jesus to ask him, hey, John the Baptist is kind of wondering when you're going to set him free. Right. Because if you're if you're the Messiah, you're here to like set captives free. Right. And yeah, help, help me help a brother out. Right. So Luke, Luke chapter seven, Luke chapter seven, Jesus says, if you read if you read Luke chapter seven, Jesus basically says, you go tell John. So, so John the Baptist, who once upon a time saw Jesus walking down to the Jordan and with crystal clarity said, behold, that's the Lamb of God. That's the, one that, that, that's the one that's been promised. That's the one I've been talking about. John the Baptizer is crystal clear on who Jesus is in that moment. And now because his circumstances have really changed and they're not getting better, he's beginning to wonder if he was as clear as he was on Jesus. Is that ever happened for you? right? When things are going well, we can be really clear on Jesus, and then suddenly our circumstances change, and I'm like, gosh, I don't know if Jesus is really that good. That's what's going on for the baptizer, right? And so he sends his entourage out, and he wants to know, are you who I thought you were? And Jesus' response in Luke chapter 7 is, you go tell John that that, that the blind are receiving sight, that the captives are being set free, that the, lame, that the lame are walking. How would John have understood that? He would have understood that through the lenses of his scriptures that indicate that when the Messiah shows up, broken stuff gets fixed. And so Jesus doesn't say, yeah, and let him know I'm going to set him free. Jesus says, let him know that I am who he thinks I am. Okay. Uh, then Jesus turns to the crowds and he says, um, in verse twenty four, seven twenty four. When John's messengers had gone, Jesus began to speak to the crowds about John. He says, "What did you go out into the wilderness to look at? A reed shaken by the wind? What then did you go out to see? Someone dressed in soft robes? Look, those who put on fine clothing and live in luxury are in royal palaces. What then did you go out to see? A prophet? Yes, I tell you, and so much more than a prophet." Okay fun, great. Like, he's saying, John, John's a good dude. Uh, and you're should have. you you're right to have listened to John. In first century Israel, um, the majority of the population was illiterate, and there was actual religious decrees against the, the images of human faces on anything. It's like a graven image type of idolatry thing. And so what the, the power structures would do is, rather than minting money with their faces on it, they would, mint, they would choose a symbol, and they would mint their money with that symbol. Okay, The symbol for Herod Antipas was the Galilean reed. Let's read this again. What did you go out into the wilderness to look at? A reed shaken by the wind? What then did you go out to see? Someone dressed in soft robes? Look, those who put on fine clothing and live in luxury, they're in royal palaces. What did you go out to see? A prophet, yeah, I tell you, a prophet and so much more. Did you go out to the wilderness to see someone who has no character, a reed shaken by the wind, a power structure that is meaningless, did you go, or did you go out to see something bigger and better? Yeah, that's what you went out to see, magnificently defiant. This is the Jesus that we follow, right? Amen. Amazing. It started to inspire courage in people. When Jesus talked this way, all of a sudden people started going, whoa, whoa. I can speak truth to power too and call people to a better way, right? And so look at uh, Luke chapter eight, one through three. Soon afterwards, Jesus went through the cities and villages proclaiming and bringing the good news of the kingdom of God. And the 12 were with him as well as some women who had been cured of evil spirits and infirmities. Mary called Magdalene from whom seven demons had gone out and Joanna, the wife of Herod's steward, Cusa, and Susanna and many others who provoked them out of their resources. So let's, there's an entourage following Jesus a chunk of them are remarkably courageous women who are literally funding Jesus' ministry. Now, do you see who's in that list of donors? A woman named Joanna, the wife of Cusa. Cuza is the manager of all of Herod Antipas' estate. Okay? Think about that. If you, if you were to look at Jesus' list of primary donors... Herod Antipas would be in like the Golden Eagle Club, right? So like, it's as though God is looking down saying, my son needs some funding for kingdom to come. I'll redistribute it from Herod Antipas, okay? But think about this. What do you think is the Jesus that Joanna followed? What's the image? What did the Jesus that Joanna followed value? Did she she see a Jesus that valued abundance and power and safety? Or did she see and follow a Jesus who was a risk taker, who was courageous, who was dead set on human flourishing and the restoration of broken things? A Jesus who who would dare to criticize unjust systems that were breaking people, right? So the Jesus that she followed shaped the way that she followed him and ultimately shaped who she became such that at the highest cost to her life and her husband's life, she began to fund Jesus' ministry from finances from Herod Antipas' household. If Antipas would have found that out, it is the end of their lives. Remarkably courageous. What is your picture of Jesus? Is he a docile, safe, fun buddy Christ? Or is he both compassionate and defiantly, excuse me, magnificently defiant? One final image. Go with me to Luke chapter 13. Luke chapter 13. One more interaction and this is my favorite. At that very hour, some Pharisees came and said to him, this is 1331. uh, Some Pharisees came to Jesus and said to him, Get away from here, for Herod Antipas wants to kill you. And Jesus said to them, Go tell that fox for me, Listen, I'm casting out demons and performing cures today and tomorrow, and on the third day, I finish my work. Yet today and tomorrow and the next day, I must be on my way because it is impossible for a prophet to be killed outside of Jerusalem. So there are Pharisees, super religious, who actually care about Jesus. And they kind of risk some stuff to say, you gotta get out of Dodge. The stuff you've been talking about, this way of life that you've been encouraging people to live that is in diametric opposition to the empire and the power structures, it's gonna cost your life if you don't get out of town. And Jesus says, go tell that fox. Now, when we think of the term fox, we're usually thinking like sly and cunning, right? As if, as if Antipas is sly and cunning. That's not the imagery being used here in this particular moment. In first century Israel, a fox is someone who would lie in wait while a lion made a kill. And when a lion made a kill and then ate its fill, the fox would like prance up to the kill and start to eat it as though it like made the kill itself. So in Jesus' day, a fox is not sly and cunning. A fox is a fraud, a fox is a poser, a fox is an illegitimate leader. Right, So he says, you go tell that fraud and phony, I'm going to be here today, I'm going to be here tomorrow, and on the third day, I'm going to have my victory. Go tell them. And while I think it's remarkable how Jesus refers to Herod Antipas, look at how Jesus refers to himself. 34, he says, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the city that kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to it. How often I've desired to gather your children together as a hen gathers her brood under her wings, but you were not willing. So Antipas is a fox, and Jesus chooses a hen to describe himself. What is the only way that a hen can protect her chicks when a fox enters a hen house? By spreading her wings over them and dying on their behalf. That is our Jesus. And, friends, for the sake of the world, if your Jesus does not look like that, audit your Jesus. Audit your Jesus. That's God's word for us this morning.